Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm carrying on the series I began last week called Solid Rock or Sinking Sand. And here's where I began this. I, I began by saying that if you look into the Gospels, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes and defines two kinds of people. In fact, as far as he's concerned, there are only two kinds of people. And I called them rock dwellers and sand dwellers. And this is what he said. He said that he who hears the word and does it is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And he who hears the word and does not do it is like the fool who builds his house upon the sand. And when the rain and the storms come, the fall of that house will be great. Well, there must be a lot of fools in the world because we have a love affair with the beach. How many of you noticed that? I mean, people around the world, and you can go on television, particular HGTV, and they got all these shows about beachfront bargain hunt. And I'll just be honest with you. I see those pictures of those houses on the beach, and I think, yeah, I want to build a house on the sand. <laughs> just be honest. I mean, they're appealing. Let, let me, I know you've seen lots of pictures, but how about that one? I could live in that house. Could you live in that house? Yeah, I don't think I could pay the taxes on it, but I'm pretty sure I could live on it. And the view, I could live on that view. And yet, for some reason, the scripture says that these people are fools that have built their house upon the sand. I was thinking about this, and, and Donald Trump is the smartest man that he knows. And he has a house on the beach, right? It's called Mar-a-Lago. Here it is. It's a, it's a pretty nice house. That's a pretty house, a nice house in Florida. And you've heard all about it because it's in the news all the time. Now, the climate alarmists have said in a few years, when the sea levels rise, it's going to look like this. <laughs> so maybe he's not so smart after all. I love this picture because I love the boat going through the yard. You know what? Someday I want to drive my boat through Donald Trump's backyard. That's one of my little goals. And so, you know, the scripture tells us that building on the sand is what the fool does because the sand moves, solid rock or sinking sand. So I told you that every week I was going to tell you a little story about building on the sand. I could tell stories about building on the rock, but they're kind of boring because those houses don't fall down. And so I'm going to be telling you stories about building on the sand because what I want to do is I want to print this picture within your mind that every time you think of this message, you think of these structures and the trouble they had because they built their house upon the sand. So last week I told a story about South Padre Island and Ocean Tower and 31 stories high that went sinking into the sand and had to come down. So this week, we're going to go straight across the Gulf of Mexico to Florida to a place called Cape Romano. So there's Cape Romano. You see that little tip of Florida there. You can see Miami. There's Cape Romano. It's marked on the map. And uh, it's south of, let's say, Fort Myers and Naples and those places. And in fact, it's the last barrier island before the Everglades. That big section there is in the Everglades. So if we zoom in a little bit, here's a, here's a picture of what it looks like. It's actually a very very pretty place. And actually, as far as barrier islands go, it's fairly stable because it's covered in mangroves. And mangroves are like iron, like they just do not move. But that's Cape Romano. And those of you that remember your junior high school geography know what a cape is, don't you? 
And a cape is a body of land that points out into the ocean. And the reason that's important is because whenever that happens, there's generally very turbulent waters. The most dangerous passage in the world we know from our geography is Cape Horn. That's where the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean come together in the confluence of those two bodies of water cause tremendous navigational hazards. Now, this is, of course, a lot less. We go back to the picture of Cape Romano for a moment if we can. But what we have is we have the Gulf Stream on the, the left of that, and then we have on the right of that, we have the tidal flows going in and out of the Marco River. I've been to this place right at the tip of this. You would not believe the current in it. It would take you away in a second like that. And so it's sort of fascinating. So here's how the story goes. So in 1980, there was a man by the name of Bob Lee. He was a retired oil man from Tennessee, and he decided he wanted to retire and go find somewhere nice on a beach and build a house upon the sand. And so he chose this exact spot that I just showed you, Crepe Romano. And he thought, what a beautiful spot. And it really is. And so he went and bought this land, never got any permits, never asked anybody about it. It was in the middle of nowhere, in the, you know, right next to the Everglades, and nobody really cared. And so he started to build. And so here's what he built. He built a dome house. Now, he was no dummy. Look at those concrete pillars going down deep into the sand. And he built these concrete domes. Do you know why? Because this is in Hurricane Alley. And every 10 years or so, a hurricane is going to come through here. And he thought, I'm going to build domes which were incredibly resilient. And when the hurricanes hit it, they're not going to move. It wasn't a terrible strategy. And so he planted beautiful palm trees and he put in these solar panels because honestly, they're in the middle of nowhere. There's no power out there. There's no services out there of any sort. And he, so he did this. He, this was 1980. He was way ahead of his time. So then he moved into this beautiful house and here's the view from his living room out to the Gulf of Mexico. And he settled in to enjoy his retirement until 1992 when Hurricane Andrew, a Category 5, came through. And the waters, of course, came right up to his structure. There's a picture, and they just kept on coming. And the house, because it was built so well and domes, it didn't move. But the island did. <laughs> and so here's the next picture. You can see the house is actually destroyed. It's still on land, but you can see nothing's kind of straight. Nothing's kind of right. And so he ended up having to move out and abandoning the house. Then 2005, there was Hurricane Wilma. And Wilma just moved it a little close to the water. In fact, it moved it right into the water. And so now it's sitting right on the beach. And it was, of course, a favorite place for people to take their boats and go down and party at the dome house. Well, in 2015, we were vacationing in Florida, and I heard about the dome house, and people were telling the story of the dome house, and it's a very storied place, and I thought to myself, I need to see this firsthand. I've got to go, and so this is what we did. Kathy and I, we, we, rented, we rented a boat. Here we are. Look how excited we are. We're going on a boating adventure, and just because she is sitting in the driver's seat, don't think for a moment I let her drive. She, she moved over and we did, made our way. It was a beautiful, calm day in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's about a 20-mile drive uh, down the coast on that particular day. And finally, we arrived at Cape Romano to see the dome house, and here it was. 180 feet offshore, now in the Gulf of Mexico. And look at that. 
Those domes are still standing. <laughs> he, he wasn't wrong about the domes. But what he was wrong about was he built his house upon the sand. And here's the thing we find about sand. Sand moves. Wind moves sand. Water moves sand. Islands made of sand move. And the reason I'm giving you these mental pictures is this. And, and it's not that I'm discouraging you for building your physical house on the sand. I don't care what you do. I am talking about figuratively and metaphorically when we build the, the house of our life, when we build it on the shifting, sinking sands of the philosophies of the world, I can tell you that there will be ruin that is coming. And so last week we talked about this. I asked the question, what is freedom? And we went to Jesus' words in John chapter 8 where he says this. He said, if you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And we talked about how that truth can set us free and what freedom was. And this week I want to talk about what truth is. Because what exactly is the truth? What is this truth we build our lives upon? What is this rock that is so solid that we can build our lives on and we know that we will not be moved? So in 2016, every year the... Oxford Dictionary comes out with what they call the word of the year. And it's a word that, it might not be a brand new word, but it's a word that has come into extensive use and ubiquitously used all around the world. And in 2016, that word was the word post-truth. Now, I'm going to throw the dictionary definition up there, but I'll tell you in short form what it is. Post-truth means this, that people are less interested in the actual truth and facts and more interested in how it affects them emotionally and how they feel will be determined how they've influenced. And what they were pointing out is we had come into the post-truth era where, and you all know post-truth people, they're the ones who say, don't confuse me with the facts, my mind is made up. Right? And we are now living in this post-truth culture where people actually don't really care about the truth, sadly to say. And then in 2017, Time Magazine did a piece on it. Theirs was interesting. Here's the cover from it, and I've put it beside the 1966 cover. 1966, Time came out with this, this cover, Is God Dead? And in 2017, after the word of the year, they decided, let's ask the question. And they used the same sort of eerie graphics. And they said, is truth dead? And the fact of the matter is, it's not that truth is dead, but the passion and the care for truth is dead. People don't really care about the truth. And you say, what are you talking about? I care about the truth. Well, th th this is what's happened. We have come not only to tolerate untruth, we've come to expect it. We don't, people, we don't expect people to tell us the truth. We don't expect politicians to tell the truth. We don't expect media to tell us the truth. We don't expect advertisers to tell us the truth. We certainly don't expect to find truth on social media. Whenever people say, well, I know it's true because I read it on the internet. I go, really? You read that on the internet? That has got to be true, right? I mean, <laughs> I don't think I have to explain that, do I? I mean, you know, everything can be made up. You know that 73.9% of statistics are made up right on the spot? <laughs> you, can, you can think about that. So, so the big question is, what is truth? What is truth? So here's where we're going. I got one little verse for you. That's all. And it comes from Psalm 119. And it is so instructive and so powerful and so meaningful and profound that it'd be easy to miss the significance of it. But here it is. 
Verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. He tells us what the truth is. He says, The entirety of your word is truth. Now, I'm wondering if you caught that. That means every single word in the Bible. Every single story, every single commandment, every single fact that we find in the Bible. He says, God has said, he says the entirety of his word is truth. All of it, all of it, all of it. And see, a lot of times people have trouble believing that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But here's why this is so important. Because if the word isn't true, if we don't have a a reliable foundation to build our life, how do we actually know what's true? What do we have to stay? How do you know truth from falsehood? And I mean, I think if the pandemic, three years of pandemic taught us anything, I think it was this, that I don't think we really know the truth, right? I mean, the truth was out there. We just, we're not sure we figured it out. Even looking back at it, I'm not really sure we heard the truth. What we did hear was we heard one single narrative, one single narrative. We had big tech and big pharma and big media and big government. They all colluded and they had one single narrative. And there was another side to the story, but we never heard it because they didn't think we were smart enough to handle the truth and make decisions for ourselves. And we might never find out the truth about that. This is why I'm warning people about what's happening in the Middle East and the battles and conflicts going there. I'm saying, you know, don't be too quick to pick a side here because you probably do not know the whole story. This is a conflict that is incredibly complicated that goes back centuries, centuries and centuries, and you're not going to be able to make a decision based on a few sound bites and, and video clips that you see on television. It's something much more significant going on in here. So now that we are in a post-Christian, post-modern, post-truth culture. We have jettisoned the Word of God. People don't care about the Word of God anymore. I mean, to to them, it's some old fables, and it's outdated, and it's outmoded, and it's of no value to us. And okay, that's fine. I don't care what the world thinks about it. Here's my bigger concern, is that the church is beginning to water down the authority of Scripture. We are wandering from it. We have been built upon the rock because Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But slowly, the appeal of the beach is drawing us away. See, what are you talking about, Pastor Mark? Well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. How about the fact that we have churches and denominations right across Canada, around North America, in the Western world, voting on same-sex marriage, voting on it, voting on it, and deciding, you know, it's like the church constitution says that the scripture may be overturned by no less than a two-thirds majority vote of the board, (laughs) right? That's a joke. I hope you realize that. And so this is what we are dealing with. We're, We're voting on things that are clear in scripture. And so something is wrong. And here's the problem. This is what people are saying, and you've all heard it. They said, well, the Scripture's good. The Scripture is fine. And it is reliable for matters of faith and practice. But when it comes to things like science and technology and geography and history, it's more metaphorical and allegorical, and it's not really reliable. Now, here's my question for you. If the Scripture is not reliable on science and history, for example... How can we trust the rest of it? And if he says the entirety of his word is true, I'm going with that. I'm going with that. The entirety of his word is true. This is what God says. So let me me just paint a picture for you. So where does the Bible come from? It comes from the God, the Lord God of heaven, 
The one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created a universe that's 13.67 billion light years from one side to the other, where there's 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars in each one, and he knows every one of those stars by name. And he created this earth and all the flora and all the fauna and all the species on it, and he created every blade of grass and every tree and the climate and the science and the geography of this whole thing, and he put man in the midst of it. It says, not only does he know every inch of this planet, he says, if a sparrow falls from a nest, the Lord is aware of that. He says, every one of your head, hairs on your head is numbered. Are you kidding me, man? That changes every single day. And he's counting, he's keeping track. The three hairstyles parted, unparted, and departed, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And so, to me, the temerity, the audaciousness to say this that God's word is true in faith and practice, but he didn't quite get the history and the science right. Really? Really the one who created the heavens and earth can't get the science right? You've got to be kidding me. That's the absolute height of human arrogance. How many of you are tracking with me so far? I know I'm getting worked up. So I'm going to tell you a story about a North American preacher. I'm not going to name his name. You can figure it out if you want on your own. But he is a pastor of a mega church. He's far, far bigger audience than I have, far more influential than I am. A very, very influential person that if I mentioned his name, probably everybody in this room would know him. But recently he has said this. He said, Peter, Paul, and James unhitched their Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. We must do the same. We have no business dragging them into our modern Context. Did did you hear that? Did you hear that? Peter, John, and or Peter, Paul, and James unhitched their Christian faith from the Old Testament scriptures. You know, I don't know if you've ever read any of the writings of Paul. Do you know what Paul does? He bases his entire theology of the New Testament on the Old Testament. He talks about the Passover and the sacrifices and the Exodus and the Day of Atonement and, and the Pentecost. And, and he relates each one of these things. Because see, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And there is this inextricable connection between these two. And to say that somehow Paul unhitched his faith from that is just absolutely ridiculous. And let's, let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Because here's the one thing Jesus did. Jesus based his entire faith on the Old Testament. What did he say? You all remember what he said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but upon what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And so we look at Jesus. He validated the Old Testament for one thing and then he repeated the Ten Commandments again and again. You've heard it said you shall not murder. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Jesus said I have not come to abolish the law but I've come to what? I've come to fulfill it. And then he rehearsed the stories. These stories that people regard as myths. The stories of David and Moses and Noah and Jonah who was in the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus tells that story like it actually happened. <laughs> you, know why did, well, you know why I did that? Because it actually happened. The entirety of your word is true. Now, I want to I take you to a little verse. I want to show you a verse here. I said I only had one. I have two. And here, here, here's the second verse. It's in John chapter 5. 
Verse 46, listen carefully. It says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Did you catch that? If you don't believe Moses' writings, what were Moses' writings? The first five books, the Pentateuch of the Bible, where all these stories, like the story of creation and the story of the flood, that's where all those stories were. And he says, you know what? If you don't believe those stories, you're not going to believe me. But if you believe those stories, you're going to believe in me because he was actually talking about me. Are you following this? There is this connection between the New and the Old Testament. And for us to unhitch or jettison the Old Testament because we don't get it, because it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient, or maybe we just don't understand it. And there is some definite awkward things in the Old Testament. I will be the first to admit that. But for us to somehow conclude that it's not legitimate and there's nothing but allegories or poetry is absolutely a slap in the face to the authority of the Word of God. You know, I, I don't get into these arguments about, with, with, with skeptics. I mean, you know, pe- people hate the six-day creation thing. And they say, well, how did God create their, the world in six days? And I laugh. I think, you know, he didn't need six days. He could have done it in six hours or six minutes or six seconds or six nanoseconds. He could have done it in the snap of the finger. He only did it for six days so that we could understand it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why he did it. I think he could have just gone, boom, and it was there. And people say, well, you don't believe the story of Noah's flood, do you? Yes, I do believe in the story of Noah's flood. He said, oh, well, that one's ridiculous. Actually, it's not ridiculous. It's so easily defendable. People don't even, seriously, they don't even know archaeological history if they don't believe that there could possibly have been a flood around the time of Noah. You know, it's fascinating because both PBS and the History Channel have done shows on this, which I found absolutely fascinating. And uh, the, the History Channel one was called the, the Great Flood. And they pointed out something I'd actually never heard before, that there are 1,200 cultures throughout history, cu- cultures and religions, that actually have a story of the Great Flood, 1,200. And almost every single culture and religion, anywhere and everywhere throughout the whole world, all believes the same thing, that there was a Great Flood at some point. The Greeks had theirs. And uh, it's, it's written in Plato's Timaeus. He tells the story about the creation of the, the earth and about this great flood. And the Mesopotamians had the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, the, you know, of course, Islam has the same one as ours, but uh, Hinduism has another one. Everybody has this story. What are the chances of every culture and religion around the world having a story about a great flood? And they all have the same narrative. It's all the same thing. They man misbehaved. The God or gods were displeased and sent a flood to punish them. That sounds an awful lot like our story. Because maybe, just maybe, it actually happened. And so I'm going to just take a few minutes here. We'll just talk about this one thing and try to validate it. So, so there's been a lot of things happened in millions of years ago. But let's talk about stuff in, in recent history that mankind possibly was around. So the last 10,000 years. So this is what we know. We know that there was actually an ice age 10,000 years ago. And that's why there are remnants of woolly mammoths in Canada. And if you look at this picture, this is what the world looked like 10,000 years ago. Uh, Canada <laughs> was, was, was under ice, the whole, and as, long, as well as northern Europe. I'm thinking sometimes it feels like it's always like that. But, but it, was, it was these huge mile, miles high glaciers over the entire uh, nation of Canada. 
And about 10,000 years ago, this, this ice age began to end. The global temperature went up about six degrees, apparently, that's what they say. And consequently, the ocean levels, the sea levels around the world went out dramatically, not just a few feet, but hundreds of feet when these ice caps began to melt 10,000 years ago. And so, you know, here's what the Mediterranean basin looks like today. I'm going to show a picture. So there's the Mediterranean. Uh, look on the left there. You see the Strait of Gibraltar. You see the Iberian Peninsula there. That's where the water goes in and out of the Mediterranean Sea. You got Italy, the big boot. You got, you know, if you look in the far right there, you can see the Middle East. Israel is there and Gaza is there. And then up in the right corner there, that is the Black Sea. That is not what it looked like 7,500 years ago. 7,500 years ago, it looked like this. This comes from PBS, by the way, these, re these recreations. And so you see that the Mediterranean was actually two bodies of water. The Iberian Peninsula uh, was closed off. There was no Strait of Gibraltar. The waters did not come in from the Atlantic Ocean. And so you have two bodies of water, and the Black Sea is still up where it is. Then what happened approximately 7,500 years ago was the water levels from the melting ice caps rose to the point where they began to come over the Iberian Peninsula. And then, of course, what we call today the, the Strait of Gibraltar. I think of another illustration of that. So these waters came flooding in. And the water levels in the Mediterranean went way up, so much so that they backwashed into the Black Sea, which incidentally was a freshwater lake back then. But now it is a saltwater lake. They call it a sea because it's got salt water in it. And that water came from the Atlantic Ocean through the Mediterranean Sea and was deposited there. Then the waters receded. Now, let's go back to that first picture of, of the Mediterranean basin here. So, the, for the second one, rather, I'm sorry. And so we look at this picture. So in the time of Noah, that's what the world would have looked like. It would have looked like this. So where were the people leave, living? They weren't living back off away from, from the water. They were probably living somewhere nearby. And there was probably a desert somewhere where, where Noah lived. And so he started building this boat. And when the floods came, here's what the scripture says. It says, not only did it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but the earth broke loose from underneath and the water came up. The water came down, the water came up. The water, for our sake of argument, maybe came through the Strait of Gibraltar, and this whole region, all these people were, were, were buried in hundreds and hundreds of feet of water, and of course, Noah's Ark ended up on the Mount Ararat, wherever that was. We're still not sure about this. And so we look at this, and I mean, there's a bunch of theories. I mean, people know that this is, there's some history of this. To most people, the whole world wasn't flooded, but the whole known world was flooded. And the only, the only kind of odd theory of the bunch, they all basically say the same thing, except for History Channel's, channels Ancient Aliens. Did any of you ever watch that? It's my like, favorite show. And, uh, so, and so they have concluded, ancient, uh, ancient astronaut theorists have concluded that maybe an uh, 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 alien race of superior intelligence sent a creature down named Noah to save the human race and used ancient alien technology to build this boat. Because how could he have built a boat this big? Now, I, you, you, how many have never seen ancient aliens? Oh my goodness gracious, you've got to watch this show. It's got great archaeology and terrible conclusions. And at the end of every show, they say, could it have been alien civilizations on Earth? And, and here's the guy. Here's the guy from it. I'm not saying it was aliens. 
but it was aliens. <laughs> That's the conclusion to every show. Boy, I'm just enjoying my own moment here all by myself. This is really fun. <laughs> it's okay. I shouldn't have brought this up. All right, let's get back to the case in hand. So people say, well, it wouldn't be possible for him to have built a boat big enough to do this. Well, actually, it would have been. How long did he have? He had 100 years. That's a very long time to build a boat. And we know exactly how big his boat was. And the boat was 515 feet long. It was 85 feet wide, and it was 48 feet high, which is fascinating because I'm going back to, to history and science here because the dimensions of six by one, six length and, and one width, is the perfect dimension for a seagoing vessel that this guy built in the desert some thousands of years ago. And it's basically the same as what they use for oil tankers, and they're basically unable to be capsized because of the dimensions, and that's what Noah built. And yes, it took him 100 years, but he had to build this boat big enough to get all those animals. And then, of course, people say, well, there's no way he's going to get all those animals on that boat. And, you know, that's because we have this picture. You've all seen it. It's up on murals and in kids' Bibles. And you've got these giant elephants walking up this gangplank. And you've got these giant giraffes and these huge hippopotamuses and rhinoceroses. And somehow or another, the unicorn is missing, just like the Irish rover said. And Noah made a grand mistake there. But here's the thing nobody ever brings up. He wouldn't have brought on adult elephants. He would have brought on two baby elephants and baby chipmunks and baby rhinoceroses. And you begin to make them all small and all of a sudden you can fit all those animals. You say, well, it's too many animals. It's millions of animals. Actually, it's not. It's 15,000 animals, 9,000 birds, 6,000 reptiles multiplied by two, male and female. You got 32,000 baby animals on this nice little jury ride. A three-hour cruise. <laughs> well, it wasn't a three-hour cruise. It was 40 days and 40 nights, and then however amount of time it took for the waters to recede, and we look at the archaeological evidence. People go skin diving in the Mediterranean Sea, and they wonder, why are there roads under the Mediterranean? Why are there remnants of city? Go look it up online. You'll see all kinds of pictures of it. It's crazy stuff. It's like the story of this guy who went to southwest Saskatchewan. And he said, man, it's dry here. Does it ever rain here? He said, do you remember that story in the Bible about Noah where it rained for 40 days and 40 nights? He says, yeah. He said, well, that time we got half inch. <laughs> <laughs> so let me conclude this message with, with, with another little history lesson for us. So in the year uh, 1999, a&E Television Network, uh, they decided they were going to try to come up with, for the year 2000, the greatest individuals, human beings of the last millennium. I mean, imagine a task like that. The greatest people who lived for a whole thousand years. I mean, what happened from the year 1000 to 2000? Everything. Everything. The world changed in every way. But they decided to give it a go and come up with a list of the 100 most influential people in the, in the millennium. And so what they did was they gathered 350 uh, scientists and scholars and academics and journalists and uh, theologians and all kinds of people, historians, and they got them all together and they came up with this list of 100 people. And the, the usual suspects are on it. You'd expect to see some of these people. So, you know, they had, you know, explorers, for example. So Marco Polo's on it and, and Christopher Columbus. And there were writers like William Shakespeare and Jane Austen, for some of you ladies. That's nice. And uh, there were statesmen like William Shakespeare and, and Nelson Mandela and scientists like Jonas Salk and, you know, Robert Oppenheimer. And, and there was, you know, inventors like, you know, Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. And the list went on and on like this. There was musicians like Bach and Mozart, and you got to love it. Elvis made the list, and I love that. 
And what I'm going to do in the conclusion of our message here today is I'm going to give you the, the three most influential people of the last millennium, according to this survey. And I'm going to start with number three. And number three, you all recognize all these names when I say them. Number three was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was a German monk living in the 16th century. And uh, he became disillusioned with uh, some, many things about the church. And in particular, the selling of indulgences to get people into heaven. And in particular, the infallibility of the, of the Pope. He didn't believe that a human being could be infallible. And the thing that distressed him more than anything else was the fact that the Word of God was not in the hands of people. And he had 95 things that bugged him. And they called them the 95 Theses. And he wrote down these 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg. And that was on October 31st, 1517. Well, the church didn't take it kindly, and he spent the next four years defending himself. And he was uh, basically excommunicated from the church, and they wanted him to recant, because what was happening was the Protestant Reformation was beginning to take root, and people were beginning to side with Martin Luther. And all he wanted to do was get the Word of God into the hands of people because he knew that people were ignorant. They didn't read the Word of God. They didn't have the Word of God. It wasn't even accessible to them in their own language. Only the scholars and the priests had it. And so he defended himself for four years until the Diet of Worms. That was his trial, the Diet of Worms. You know what the Diet of Worms is? Slimy, yet satisfying. That's what the Diet of Worms is. (laughs) Lion King reference. I can amuse myself all day long if I have to. <laughs> don't, don't worry about that. So anyway, they want, all they wanted them to do was recant it. All they, they said, look, we'll restore you. We'll, we'll re, re-communicate you rather than excommunicate you if you will just recant it. And he stood up and he said, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For it would go against my conscience, which would not be right or nor safe. So here I stand and I shall not be moved. God help me. Amen. And thus began the Protestant Reformation and everything that we know about the church because one man stood for the word of God and he was the third greatest person in the last millennium. Number two on the list was Sir Isaac Newton. And Sir Isaac Newton, of course, we know a lot about him because he discovered gravity. Aren't you glad he discovered gravity? You know, you wouldn't be able to go up and down the stairs without gravity. Thanks to Isaac Newton, I can go up and down these stairs very comfortably. Well, I know he didn't invent it, but he discovered it as long as, the, as well as the laws of motion and planetary motion and tides, and he invented calculus, and the lists of things went on and on. In fact, I would go as far as to say that, that he quantitatively was the greatest scientist that ever lived. Every, all of science that we know today is based on the discoveries of, of Isaac Newton. But here's the one thing that most people do not know about him, that he was not only a devoted Christian, but he was a scholar and a student of the Word of God. He was a theologian in his own right, and his particular passion was the uh, literal interpretation of the Scripture. He wrote extensively on that subject, and he believed, are you ready for this? He believed that the Word of God held the secrets to science and the universe. And he went and he, and he, his Bible is in, in the library at the uh, Cambridge University in England. And there's hundreds and hundreds of notes in the Bible and how he felt he derived the science and the understanding of the universe that he had from the scripture itself. 
Now, there was a man who understood and believed. Now, I'm going to throw a couple of quotes up just so you're real clear on this. This is what he said. This is around the year 1700, in case you're wondering the time frame. We account the scriptures of God to be the most sublime philosophy. I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than any profane history whatever. Profane meaning secular. Next quote. All variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could happen only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call Lord God. So number three was Martin Luther, very committed to the Word of God. Number two was Sir Isaac Newton, very committed to the Word of God. And number one was Johannes Gutenberg. And everybody here knows that he invented the printing press. He was a very uh, unassuming individual, not a successful individual by any means, but he had this idea for a movable type printing press. I want you to think about why this would be number one. Because prior to Gutenberg, People were not only ignorant, but most people were illiterate because there was actually no books to read. The only books that existed were scrolls and books that were handwritten one from another and passed around the academics and the scholars and people of influence. And the rank and file people didn't even have a reason to read because there were no books printed because there was no printing press. And he revolutionized the world because he brought people out of darkness and into the light because now they actually had the ability to read. And he borrowed money to do it. And the year was, it was 1450, and he borrowed money, and he built these two printing presses, and one he used to make money and do commercial printing, and the other one he used to print the Bible. And then his partner that he borrowed the money for him sued him and took half of the business and took away that part of the business, and he spent the rest of his life printing Bibles. And this is what Johannes Gutenberg said. It is a press, certainly, but a press from which flow an inexhaustible stream through it, God will spread his word, a spring of truth that shall flow like it, like a new star, it shall scatter the darkness of ignorance and cause the light heretofore unknown to shine amongst men. His passion was to get the word of God into people's hands because he understood this, that the entirety of his word is truth. And if you abide in his truth, then you are disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free let's stand together all right let's take a moment like we always do the entirety of his word is true and one of the things he has emphatically said is that if we want to get to heaven, there's only one way to do that, and that's through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never invited Christ into your life, if you're here today and you've never had that definitive moment where you've said yes to him, I want to give you an opportunity. I will not call you forward. I'm not going to single you out. You don't have to say anything publicly. If you're online, there's a little icon you can click of a hand, and that's your sign. If you're in this room, nobody's looking around, every eye's closed. All I want you to do is just slip up your hand from where you are, right where you are so I can see it. And by doing so, you're saying to me, yes, I want to make that decision. Right now, if there's someone today that wants to make this decision to be a follower of Jesus, and we'll just take a moment, and we're going to pray with you. We're not going to call you for All right, you can put your hands down. And if you raised your hand, or maybe you should have raised your hand, I want you to pray with us. And if you're online and you made this decision, I want you to pray with us. So let's all pray together. Lord God, 
I thank you that your word is truth. And I can rely on it. And I can build my life on it. And I thank you for the gift you've given me. That you died on the cross for my sin. That you rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give him a shout. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 